This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Democrat Laura Curran, the first woman elected county executive on Long Island, breaking a glass ceiling and vowing to break with the past. Laura Curran joining us alive. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. Entertaining and informative. Thought-provoking conversations that get right to the point. Observers say her future is bright. You're here to tell us more about it, Laura Curran. Now here's Laura Curran. Hello, everyone. Welcome to your Sunday afternoon. I can't think of anywhere I would rather be than in the WABC studio with my homies behind the glass and everyone out there listening. I want to give a special shout out to my actually my oldest friend. I moved around a lot as a kid, so I lost a lot of childhood friends. But my oldest friend is named Jenny, and she lives in New Jersey, and she is a loyal listener. And we have really connected over the show, which is amazing. So, Jenny, hi. Um, give me a call, Jenny or anyone else at the end of the show. We're going to take your calls. 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Because we got a lot to talk about. It seems like every Sunday I try to sum up what's going on, what's interesting, get some interesting guests to you. And it's always fascinating. There's always so much. Okay. So I have been particularly fascinated slash obsessed with AI artificial intelligence and how it intersects with politics and is already starting to change how political campaigns are happening. So we're going to talk to an AI expert named Phil Siegel in a second. I'm also going to talk to the former head of the criminal division in the Department of Justice about the Hunter Biden thing. Um, I want to have a very nonpartisan conversation about this. I want to have a very real conversation about what it's actually like in the Department of Justice and how these cases come about uh, so that should be good, no matter how you feel about Hunter and all of his shenanigans. Uh, and then I want to get local. We're going to talk about the New York State commercial real estate scene. Not as good as it could be, not as good as it should be. We're going to speak with commercial observer reporter Andrew Cohen about that. The state of real, uh, commercial real estate here in New York City and what it means for the city in general and what it means for the region. All right. So let's get right to it. Let's cut to the chase, as they say. Uh, I'm going to introduce Phil Siegel in a second, but I just want to tell you why I find this so, so interesting. So chat GPT is now sort of a regular part of our lexicon. We all know what it is. We've checked it out. I looked myself up on it, actually, and it was not accurate. <laughs> it said that well, I'm not going to bore you with what it said, but it wasn't right. Anyway, uh, nobody knew what it was. Now everybody's talking about it. Seven months ago, it didn't exist. We're already seeing how AI is creeping into political campaigns. We saw the Republican National Committee, the RNC, put out this dystopian video that, you know, what would happen if Biden won in 2024 being used in the Toronto's mayor's race, more dystopian images in the New Zealand race, uh, political race. There's an Instagram of a fake robbery of a jewelry shop, AI generated, the Chicago's mayor's race uh, that just happened. There was a fake news outlet on Twitter that was putting out AI generated cloned candidates voice uh, was not the candidate. 
We have DeSantis putting out an ad, a video with Trump hugging Fauci. Never happened. Um, and for you younger folks who know what Twitch is out there on Twitch TV, there is a hilarious debate between Trump and Biden. Yeah, don't listen to it at work because it has a lot of bad words, but it's really, really funny. And it just gives you a sense of the capability of AI. It can do a lot and it can do it really well. So with that, I want to bring in my guest. First time he's been on this show. His name is Phil Siegel. And he is a founder of a nonprofit called CAPTRS, C-A-P-T-R-S. It stands for Center for Advanced Pathogen Threat and Response Simulation. CAPTRS uh, basically does enhanced games for decision makers on how to deal with crises. So it's sort of like tabletop exercises, but AI generated. Phil, did I get that right? Uh, close enough. Yeah, that's great, Laura. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me. You got it. You got it. So... You are, from what I can tell, having read about you, seeing seen some of your appearances on television, you're pretty bullish on AI, right? You're you're an AI optimist, we could say. Uh, I, I'm kind of more uh, in the in the center of it. I would say I'm very optimistic about how AI can improve our lives, but I'm also very realistic um, about things we need to protect against, and that's really what our nonprofit is is is. Uh, based on because it can be used for for bad things. And you mentioned some with the campaigns, but, you know, other things as well um, that uh, that put us at risk. So I'd say I'm an optimist, but uh, a realist as well. A cautious optimist, perhaps. Yeah, that's pretty good. So it's been estimated that about 80 percent of jobs could be replaced or transformed by A.I. over the next few years. Uh, and a lot, there are a lot of jobs in politics. I'm a former politician. I understand that there are pollsters, campaign managers, uh, press people. There's a, you know, people who churn out those fundraising emails. There's a ton of jobs. There's a lot of money to be made. And what we're already seeing, uh, AI being used to help craft speeches, press releases, jokes, pictures, videos, etc. cetera. Uh, is there a concern? In the AI world, that it, this will whittle away more trust, that fewer people will trust politicians than they already do because it's already at an all-time low. Yeah, that's that's a very good question, and you have to unpack a lot of different things here. There's um, you know, one of the issues, obviously, is um, content that, as you kind of put it, didn't really occur um, being shown on television uh, and being said that it did. Um, and then how do you separate that from satire? There was a, uh, an ad that, that Trump did in the, uh, a few weeks ago, putting DeSantis in a, uh, a situation that was probably more satire than it, than it would have been considered, um, lying. But some of these other things, um, you know, could be just considered, um, you know, making up, uh, uh, situations that didn't occur mm-hmm. or, um, that you know haven't occurred or won't like occur. Trump hugging it, Fauci, for instance. Yeah, exactly. And if and if there's an implication that that happened, um, you know, that's different than if you're just trying to say, um, uh, you know, turn it into a metaphor or something like that. And so I think we're going to have to have um, some kinds of disclosures, uh, especially in political political ad situations where. Um, the campaigns are going to have to either vouch for the um, the accuracy of the content uh, or they're going to have to say that it is a, um, you know, a metaphor or some type of 
um, situation that they imagine occurs. You know, if right. you're making the point that you think Trump embraced Fauci, that's a very reasonable point if you're Ron DeSantis to make in a campaign. If you're trying to imply that Trump actually hugged Fauci and it was on camera, that's that's just a lie. And so there needs to be some way of telling the difference between um, your intent there. You know, when we're ever talking about emerging technology, the topic of regulation comes up. The European Parliament earlier this month moved to restrict the use of AI. Uh, should, you know, do you think America should do something similar? There have been a few federal laws proposed, but nothing is on the books right now. So it's unfettered. Do you think that this is something government should get more involved with in regulating? I, I think we're going to have to have, to have that. Um, and I think the lesson learned is really around social media where we did not do that. Mm. Um, and because we didn't do that, some things that we, you know, we have pretty good consensus among the population um, uh, as being the bad side of, of social media have occurred. And we don't have the laws on the books to, um, to to make those changes yet. And they're scrambling to try to catch up. But it would be better to do what we're doing, which is maybe get out ahead of it like we're doing with with AI and and I think, you know, here again, um, I think there's a fairly decent consensus on what are the things that need to happen. It's just there's not a consensus on how to do them yet. Europe is running maybe a little too fast. I think some of their ideas uh, are, you know, not quite fully baked, but their intent is good, right? They're trying to get out in front of it. But, you know, I, I like to when, whenever I'm asked, I say there's really four things that we need to really be doing. You know, number one is um, protecting children. Uh, we just have to make sure that um, uh, that especially and this is probably the bailiwick of the FTC, that, you know, we don't allow uh, artificial intelligence um, uh, to, you know, to, to cause our children harm in any way. Right. Um, num- number two really is around crime. Um, one of the, pro- you know, some of our laws need to be hardened to, to be clear that um, when people are using AI to commit crimes or the, you know, the AI was, uh, um, uh, was involved, that we have something in place that, you, you, you know, you can't say the dog ate my homework and you can't say I was just doing what the AI told me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to make sure those are really hardened. The, you know, the third area really is around making sure that these algorithms don't cause unfairness to get hard coded into our daily lives. So, you know, we've we've seen, you know, what happens in terms of fairness and giving out loans and hiring decisions and so forth. And, you know, we've regulate, you know, we have a lot of regulations around that, some of them local, some of them national. But we, you know, when you start to get a computer involved, it's very easy for it to, to get out of control. And so we have to make sure that we're you know, we have those types of things closed off. And then the fourth is really around what maybe is the thing that most people talk about, which is guardrails mm-hmm. around the technology so that uh, it doesn't get out of control. And I, and I don't worry about, for example, you know, the you know, if you recall the Terminator 2 movie where, you know, Skynet gets out of control and blows up humanity, it's much more people using the technology for bad acts, um, right. very sophisticated bad acts. And that's what we we really need to be guarding against. And that's, uh, you know, back to that's what our nonprofit is really about, is how do we get ready for crises that can be caused by bad actors and by nature and so forth. But, you know, we have to we have to have the regulations in place to make sure we're ready. for And that. of course, the famous one is Hal in 2001. 
Space Odyssey. Exactly. I'm speaking with Phil Siegel. He's an expert in AI. I'm Laura Kern, and you are listening to Cut to the Chase. It seems interesting. uh, You know, we're talking about AI in politics and in political campaigns. I found this very interesting. There's a bipartisan group of consultants called the American Association of Political Consultants, bipartisan Republicans and Democrats Mm -hmm. together. They agree. Their board of directors unanimously condemned the use of deep fakes in political ads, calling it, quote, a dangerous threat to democracy, um, according to Politico. So you might, you know, you might see some self-regulation in the political industrial complex, as I like to call it. However, you will always have rogues and rebels who want to win at any cost and might not listen to, you know, these uh, smarty pants over at the American Association of Political Consultants. Is that something that concerns you? Yeah, and it gets back to the first part of the topic that we had is, you know, it's really two separate things at the same time. Number one is how do you um, uh, hold people accountable? And the, the easy way there, I think, or the way that they're going to have to do it is just like candidates have to say, I approve this message. They're going to have to say whether or not they were using um, technology, whether or not the scenario they painted in the in the ad is is something that is real or was created through AI or something that you know identifies that, and then held accountable um, for for doing that, whether it's a campaign violation or in some cases uh, could be a crime. Um, but but the second thing is is um, in the enforcement side, um, really trying to understand this line between satire and um, uh, yeah. And just, you know, lying. And so that's a tough one. I mean, we have, um, you know, very uh, strong First Amendment rights around satire and, mm-hmm. you know, s- s- several political ads while they make up things all the time. I mean, you put um, a politician's head on a chicken, right, and mm-hmm. have them cluck around, you know, that's. Yeah, that's happened all the time or the famous, you know, peas <laughs> in a pod. When I was running for county exec the first exactly. time I, as a Democrat. Uh, you know, everybody hated de Blasio. So it was like the peas in the pod. So it was our little faces on the peas in the pod. <laughs> it's just so silly. Right. So there's always been this goofy kind of stuff. That, right. And I don't think anybody was thinking that your opponent was claiming that you were a pea inside of a pea pod. Right. right. So quite literally, you know, clearly satire. But, you know, but that's not the same thing as um, and, and it would be very different if the ad is claiming that you know, Trump embraced Fauci's ideas and, you know, and then DeSantis said, I, you know, this is artificial intelligence generated hug and I'm making a point. Yeah, but that gets lost. Yeah, versus saying we caught on camera something that that actually didn't happen. You know, those are two very different intents. But how you enforce that um, is, is it's, you know, it's not obvious to me. Uh, the uh, AI has already been used in campaigns to help identify potential donors, which is a huge part of running for office. I can tell you that firsthand. You got to spend a lot of money on the phone asking people for money, which is a big pain in the butt, but that's what it is. Uh, this might make it a little easier. Uh, and another interesting fact I found, Phil Siegel, uh, AI expert that I'm speaking to, almost half of the first drafts of fundraising emails are being produced as we speak by ChatGPT, said one campaign expert. Uh, not many will admit it, but that's what's happening. And they're also finding that the AI generated solicitations for money 
are more successful in raising money than human beings, uh, which which I find very interesting. So AI sort of knows how to be manipulative, which gives me pause. But that just I guess it just shows how effective it is. Yeah. Well, I I mean, that's a, uh, a loaded word, I think, manipulative on that, because I, I think it is going to be used for sales and marketing a lot. Um, I'm sure that, um, you know, all, all of the, the companies that use customer relationship management software like Salesforce.com and so forth, that, you know, those tools are going to be added into those programs. There's no doubt about that. They probably uh, have already um, put some uh, some low level things in there. And, and that's just going to be the way of life. Yeah. Forward. I mean, I, you notice how AI is creeping into every aspect of life. As I was typing up my notes for this show, for instance, my word program would suggest phrases and words as I was typing away, you know, very helpfully. That's AI right there. It, it's, it's pretty much everywhere. You know, Phil, before yeah. I let you go, I've got one more question for you. Uh, and this mm-hmm. is, I don't know if you know this answer or if there even is an answer yet, but you know, I'm thinking of, the Bill Clinton election back in 1992, there was the 24-hour news cycle. It seemed so fast at the time. Wow, 24 hours. That's crazy. <laughs> now it's minutes. Uh, now with AI, I'm imagining there's going to be a whole new job description of responding, rapid response, war room response to AI BS coming out from the opposing campaign. Are you seeing that yet or has that not happened? Yeah, I, I'm guessing it's in development. Um, I, I'm not as aware on the political side, um, and, and I'm guessing you would probably know more about the specifics than yeah. I would. But just knowing how the tools can be used, we're, we're already seeing it in other areas. Um, and so I would tell you, I think, you know, I kind of call it the AI can be an angel on your shoulder or a devil on your shoulder. Yeah, um, and so that's what's going to happen, right? We're going to have all kinds of, you know, people are going to have angels on their shoulders, helping them do their work more productively. It's going to make all of our lives better when we use it for those good things. Uh, but when we use it for the bad things, the, you know, the devils are going to also make um, our bad acts more efficient as well. And so, you, you kind of hit on it. It might even be instantaneous news cycles, especially through social media, um, where you can post something, you know, in a moment. My, you know, my concern is that people are already cynical. Polls show that trust, trust in politics and politicians is, is, is lower than it's ever been since they started studying this sort of thing. And everybody's skeptical, which is good. It's good to check sources and look at both sides. But I'm just wondering if people will become so cynical as to just tune out, which would be a shame for democracy. But Phil Siegel, who is a founder of Captors, thank you so much. I'm fascinated by AI all the time. So I'd love to have you back on Cut to the Chase another time. Would love that. Thanks, Lauren. All right. Sounds great. All right. You got it. Take care. All right. Coming up next after the break, I'm going to speak with former head of the criminal division of the U.S. Department of Justice. Her name is Leslie Caldwell. She's put away gang members, drug lords, cop killers. She's going to talk to us about the Hunter Biden case and what actually goes on at the DOJ after the break. Observers say her future is bright. You're here to tell us more about it, Laura Curran. Now here's Laura Curran. 
Welcome back, everyone, to Cut to the Chase. Uh, please call me. I see we got Chris and Tony on the line. I want to talk to you in a little bit. Call 800-848-WABC. We'll get to your calls, 848-9222. Okay, big topic this week has been Hunter Biden. People have very strong feelings about this. I want to have a dispassionate, if possible, conversation about this whole case. And who better than someone who has been head of the criminal division of the Department of Justice, a former assistant U.S. attorney who has put gang members, drug lords and cop killers behind bars, who has spent the majority of her career handling federal criminal cases, both as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney. So welcome to Cut to the Chase, Leslie Caldwell. Hey, Laura, thanks for having me. You got it. Okay, so one thing we're hearing, and I, I really don't want to make – I am I did read the Hunter book, Hunter t- laptop book, Laptop from Hell by Miranda Devine. I thought it was fascinating. It was a really good read. I thought there was a lot there. I think it's interesting that <clears throat> none of it's really been denied, so there's all that. However, what I want to talk about with you, Leslie, uh, drawing on your experience, is what actually happens in the DOJ. So we're hearing a lot of talk from people who uh, don't like the Bidens and want to see uh, Biden gone, saying it's a two-tiered system. This is a sweetheart deal. This is a slap on the wrist, the, we- the weaponized DOJ. We've heard these phrases over and over and over. But as someone who actually ran the criminal division at the U.S. Department of Justice, how much does politics and the sway of elected officials matter in cases how cases are investigated, and how charges are brought. So I would say that it matters little, if at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to say when I worked at the Justice Department that I wished sometimes that our meetings at the level of the attorney general and and other high-up levels could be open to the public so that people could see the kind of deliberations and careful consideration that actually goes on. Mm. Um, And I think that's how it should be, and I think that's – from from everything that I've seen, it seems like that's how it's working in this instance as well. Interesting. So when you hear these charges with your knowledge, with your experience, that this is a sweetheart deal, it's a slap on the wrist. Uh, do you what do you does it want make you want to take tear your hair out and say, hey, no, this is not actually how it happens. So these charges are. um First of all, I, I was a prosecutor for almost 20 years in various U.S. attorney's offices in Maine Justice. And, and you're not a part – so, just so our listeners know, you are not a partisan person. I mean you've worked for no, all different kinds all. of administrations. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, I've, I've served m- multiple presidents, including Republicans and Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know, in my tenure as a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, honestly, I – I could probably count, I could count on less than one hand the number of times there's been a prosecution brought for somebody for essentially lying to, lying on a form to get a firearm, um, especially lying about something like drug, drug use and drug addiction. And the tax case itself is a very routine way to handle similar fact patterns in other tax cases, not involving people named Biden. Hmm. You know, I was talking about AI in politics in the segment before this, and I was I, I think, you know, tr- trust is a very big theme for me in general, especially when it comes to politics. Twenty percent of Americans say they have trust in government officials to do what is right 
almost always or most of the time. So basically 20 percent of Americans don't trust do, do trust politicians most of the time. It's a near record low, according to Pew Research. So I think in a very highly charged political atmosphere that we're in now and you look at the timing where the Hunter announcement comes exactly a week after Trump pleaded not guilty to his 37 felony charges, it, uh, you know, of course, it's easy to spin the narrative that this is completely unfair and you compare the two and they're they're punishing one because he's a Republican, helping the other because he's a Biden. But I have to imagine when you're a professional prosecutor and you're working hard on these cases that that's got to be frustrating. But there's only so much you can say. It's not like you have PR people getting you out there and helping you spin. You kind of have to almost rely on other politicians to do that or other pundits to do that. Have you I mean, you don't have to give me the specifics, but have you ever been in a situation similar to this where you feel like the truth isn't coming out and it's incredibly frustrating? So I think in any high profile case um, and I wouldn't necessarily this is obviously a high profile because of who the defendant is. But otherwise, it's a relatively mundane criminal prosecution Mm -hmm. um, of relatively mundane conduct in the grand scheme of what you see as a federal criminal prosecutor. Um, It can be extremely frustrating, but you can't allow yourself to be driven by people's reactions or people's misinterpretations or interpretations of of what's really happening. You have to be driven by the evidence, driven by the facts, and driven by the law. And it appears from everything that I've seen, at least relating to this case, and of course I have no inside information, that it was handled in in, an appropriate way with the holdover U.S. attorney, with the attorney general not being involved and and deferring to the U.S. attorney to make whatever decisions he thinks or thought were appropriate. That appears to be what happened here. Yes, I'm speaking to Leslie Caldwell, former head of the criminal division of the U.S. DOJ, um, longtime prosecutor and defense attorney. I'm Laura Kern. You are listening to Cut to the Chase. So speaking of Merrick Garland, this is a very interesting element of the case. Uh, So the Delaware U.S. attorney who is prosecuted this is named David Weiss. He was Trump appointed and Merrick Garland it sounds to me like just to be very careful and not say, you know, that this is political, kept him on when usually U.S. attorneys are replaced with a new administration of a different party. That's just what happens. But as an exception, this guy was kept on and has told lawmakers in Congress that he was given, yes, I, David Weiss, and telling lawmakers that you're you're given ultimate authority over the case. I have an ultimate authority over the case, including when and where to bring charges. What I have wide open jurisdiction. He said this. He was an accountant. Oh, who's that? Someone's talking. Leslie, are you there? I don't know. How are you doing, Lauren? I'm great. Who's this? Okay, he's gone. Leslie, are you there? I am here. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so David Weiss has said, yes, I've had freedom to do this as I want, where I want, how I want. But there's something kind of in the weeds that happened. Um, and I wanted to get your take on this. So House Republicans in the Ways and, in the Ways and Means Committee said that two IRS agents told them that DOJ officials prevented Weiss from bringing cases against Hunter Biden in D.C. and in California. Now, Weiss has said in the past, no, that never happened, blah, blah, blah. But he didn't comment on this specific thing after these allegations were made. What do you make of that? Because that seems like a little 
chink in the armor, a little way to like nip away at credibility in the case. And that, hey, yes, see, this is proof that it is political because these two IRS officials told us this. My understanding from what I've read in the media was that one IRS official was the case agent assigned to the case and another was his or her supervisor. Um, it's not at all unusual. And again, I don't know anything about the substance of what they're saying or, or the veracity, but it's not at all unusual when you're working on a case with an agent to have disagreements between the agents and the prosecutors about what the ultimate outcome of the case should be. Ah. You know, agents are understandably tend to be partisan in favor of their cases. Right. And, and that's natural. Um, so it's hard to tell what this really amounts to, but it's certainly not unheard of for an agent to disagree with a prosecutor's charging decision at one level or another. Yeah. So a lot of people are saying, okay, this is done. This is over. He just got the slap on the wrist. This is all that's going to happen. But actually there's more that's going to happen. Uh, a judge has to make a decision on this and Hunter Biden potentially faces uh, problems and if, if he reneges on the plea deal, i.e. if he uses drugs and or gets a gun, he could go to prison for 10 years. He could have a huge fine. Um, and prosecutors are and, – and even if he doesn't renege on the deal, prosecutors aren't expected to recommend jail, but the judge has the final say. The max sentence could be 12 months in prison and a $25,000 fine for the tax charge. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not completely done yet. Do you have any predictions about what might, what the judge might decide, or is that just too hard to guess right now? You know, I don't know the I don't know the, who the judge, I, I mean, I know the judge's name, but I don't know the judge. Yeah. So I can't really predict what this specific judge will do, but I can certainly tell you that in a misdemeanor tax case involving a first time offender, it would be very unusual for the person to be sent to jail absent some other circumstances. And likewise, um, similarly with the the firearms form charge, that also would be extremely unlikely to result in a jail term. Right. So, Leslie Caldwell, I want to thank you so much. You are just so listeners. I just want to get this in the listeners' minds that you are a nonpartisan. You've worked for Republican administrations, for Repu- uh, Re- Republican and Democratic administrations. You've been head of the criminal division in the Department of Justice. If there's one thing you want people to know about cases like this, what would it be? I think that um, people should understand that unlike some members of Congress who have motivations to and incentives to um, take very partisan positions, federal prosecutors, in my experience, don't don't operate that way. They don't think that way. They don't look at the evidence that way. They don't go looking for evidence to build a case that doesn't really exist. Likewise, when the case really does exist, they don't try to turn a blind eye to the facts. Um, And I think that would be something that people should understand. I realize there's been a huge decrease in the level of trust in government and public and law enforcement. Um, But I don't think that that's really merited in light of certainly my almost 40 years as a criminal lawyer on both sides of the both sides of the fence. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that people should understand that individual line prosecutors at DOJ and even U.S. attorneys really are looking to do the right thing and to use use their roles to 
develop evidence and bring cases that should be brought and not bring cases that shouldn't be brought. And I think people don't really believe that or trust that, but I think that's that's the truth. Leslie Caldwell, I want to thank you so much. Head of Former head of the criminal division, a 40-year career as prosecutor, defense attorney, worked for Republicans, Democrats, telling it like it is. So really appreciate your insights. Thanks so much for coming on Cut to the Chase. My pleasure, Laura. Thank you. All right. Take care. So I can see this is inspiring a lot of phone calls, which I'm very happy about because I want to talk to you. 800-848-WABC, 848-9222. So after a quick break, we're going to speak about the commercial real estate situation here in New York City. It's not great, I'm sorry to say, but although not as bad as San Francisco, which is a total nightmare. Uh, So and then we're going to take all your calls. We got Mario. We got Chris. We got Pat, Anthony, Tony, George. I really can't wait to talk to you on Cut to the Chase after the break. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Welcome back to Cut to the Chase. I am Laura Curran, and I'm looking outside the window of the studio here at WABC. A lot of buildings going up. A lot of buildings are empty. Uh, about 50% capacity uh, in New York City offices. That's the typical office attendance on a typical weekday. It doesn't look like it's getting great, uh, although we can compare ourselves to San Francisco where the malls are shutting down, all the stores are shutting down, people are getting the hell out of there. So it's not it's not that bad. But just to get a sense of how it is now and where it's going to go, I have back Andrew Cohen, who is a reporter for the Commercial Observer. Andrew, welcome back. Thank you, Laura. Excited to be back with you. So I can hear you beautifully. I remember the last time we spoke, you were in Las Vegas, and I think you were just having way too much fun. <laughs> so that's much more clear. Uh, so I, you may have seen this report from controller, New York City controller Brad Lander. He rolled out this worst case scenario that there could be a substantial drop of 40% in Manhattan's office space value, in the value of it in the next about eight years resulting in a big drop in New York City property taxes, which, of course, would make the city's budget gap even bigger. How realistic do you think this scenario is? I think it's uh, – unfortunately, I do think it's very realistic um, because, you know, the hybrid working trends that, you know, have been very persistent during the pandemic I do think are here to stay. Now, that's not to say that there's not going to be a need for – office space, there's just going to be a need for a lot less office space. And there's going to be winners and losers uh, in in the process. I mean, there are some success stories in New York, certainly. One, Vanderbilt, uh, which was uh, built or opened in twenty late 2019. I mean, that's uh, almost 100% leased mm. and uh, doing very well. One World Trade Center continues to do very well. But there are a lot of properties, older properties uh, and, and Class D properties that – 
I think at the end of the day are are, are probably not going to make it and going to need to be converted or, or they're going to have to find other uses for. Right. You know, and there's another issue uh, where high tax area, you have folks like Jamie Dimon, who is the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. He's saying, hey, taxes are really expensive. Maybe the quality of life is better in places like Texas and Florida. They're more welcoming to us, a more business-friendly environment. Is that a concern as well? Yes, there's COVID and people have new habits of working, so they're not going in every day. But then you have the other aspects of lower crime, potentially not as much homelessness, fewer taxes, more business-friendly environment. Is that a concern as well? It certainly is with the uh, commercial real estate uh, community. I know they, you know, they've been very uh, aggressive in trying to push uh, lower taxes or, you know, at least holding the line on raising taxes. I know, you know, they're, um, they lobby very hard uh, with the legislator, especially um, the real estate board of New York, because they know that that's, you know, that that is, that is a uh, concern. Um, uh, I will say, though, I think one thing that's kind of a saving grace for New York uh, is that there is a lot of financial services companies in New York. Um, that's mm-hmm. a huge part of the uh, of the city's uh, economy. And those companies are pushing the back to the work or back to the office uh, much more aggressively than, say, tech companies. And that's a big reason why I think you, know, you mentioned San Francisco before. Yes. I think that's a big reason why their uh, office um, – they, uh, their office uh, occupancy uh, is much is much lower. I think is because they're, they're much more uh, of a tech driven economy, and it affects the whole ecosystem of a neighborhood. If you don't have people coming in, it's like the lifeblood coming into the organs, keeping them vibrant. Uh, are you seeing neighborhoods in places like Astoria and Park Slope and other neighborhoods around the five boroughs that are benefiting from this from this more? working remote? I mean, I'm imagining local restaurants, bars, coffee shops, you know, cleaners, small mom and pop retail shops are benefiting from what could be a loss in the business districts. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I have heard that in terms of, especially on the retail end, because I mean, that's one thing that's kind of often forgotten with uh, when we talk about the, uh, the office market is the effect on the retail space, the small mom and pop deli, you know, that is used to getting a lot of office workers five days a week. Well, now they might be getting them three days a week or, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's certainly a lag there, but as a result of that, I think, you know, you do have more people working remotely on certain days who might have their apartments in Brooklyn or Queens and they're, they're, uh, you know, supporting their, those local businesses. So, so there is that, yes, there is that, uh, absolutely that element. What's happening with Hudson Yards and, and that amazing development that opened right before the pandemic? Is that vibrant? Is that full? Are people going to work there? Yeah, I, you know, when I mentioned before, you know, that the you know some success, there are some uh, some success stories out there. Certainly, Hudson Yards comes to mind. Uh, those, you know, they they they've opened uh, a few new buildings there in recent years. Also, Manhattan West, which is right next to um, Hudson Yards, and and those office properties are you know, close to, you know, I mean, not 100 percent, but they're, you know, very, very high. Um, so higher than what, you know, um, what would be called the class B properties. Oh, yeah, much, much higher. And, and, and have attracted some some big companies. You know, Ernst Young has a, uh, some space, a lot of uh, space there. Uh, Pfizer, their new global headquarters mm-hmm. uh, is in Hudson Yards. So, yeah, those properties are, are doing well. Now, I think um, what's interesting with Hudson Yards is initially, you know, they envisioned a lot more um, development there. And, and some of that has been 
on hold. Now, one of um, uh, related group, the uh, developer is is pitching a um, a casino for part of that. Yes, um, that's right. Development. You know, that's a whole other topic, of course, you know, there's a, in terms of who's going to get that. Like, yeah, I'm fascinated by that. And, and Larry Silverman's throwing his hat in the ring kind of late in the game here for his property, not too far from Times Square. I think it's like at 40th and 11th or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So then there's that. Another far west side, (laughs) yes. And, 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 you know, while it's a different topic, it does kind of relate, I would say, in terms of Manhattan, at least. You know, there's a few proposals in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And so Green has one Mm -hmm. uh, in Times Square. And I think, uh, you know, part of what's driving that is that these are big office landlords and they're, you know, they're struggling in terms of their, uh, uh, in some of their properties, especially the Class B ones. And, you know, they're kind of looking for, some other kind of uh, some other kind of project to uh, you know kind of fill the void. What about Vornado? They put pressed pause on their huge, very ambitious development around Penn Station. Any words from them? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's interesting with with, with Stephen uh, Roth, the um, the head of Vornado. I I covered a couple of their earnings calls in 2021, mm. and at that point, he was still very bullish on on office. You know, thinking that eventually it's gonna it's gonna return. I mean, not just him, but but a lot of um, a lot of the big uh, heads of these of these large REITs. And uh, he is now, you know, you know, sounding the alarms a little bit. I mean, when he does that, I think that that uh, mm-hmm. kind of tells you that we're kind of in this. You know, you know that the the office environment is kind of, uh, you know, perhaps has been changed uh, forever. Um, so, and it's also certainly reflective in his, um, in a lot of his Penn Station uh, plans. I think, you know, that is going to be, you know, kind of like Hudson Yards. That is going to have to be probably rethought a bit, you know, and, and, and maybe not include as much of the office, of the office component. But I think, like I said before, though, Class A, you know, newer class A office properties, there is a demand for those that have the, you know, the most modern amenities. So I think there could be, there could be some, some need for that. It's just a question of, um, it's kind of like a slow moving car crash though. in a lot, in a lot with a lot of these other older properties, because mm-hmm. they have, they still have leases, but you know, they're probably not going to make it. So it's just kind of trying to filter that uh, through that process. That's going to be um, the key. Andrew Cohen, a reporter for Commercial Observer. I've got one more question before I let you go. So you talked earlier in the conversation about how some of these buildings that aren't being used or maybe, you know, they can't pay the mortgage anymore, the property taxes get too much, that their use could be transitioned to something else. What exactly could these transition into? Well, the, the the most common uh one would be multifamily. Mm-hmm. But Housing. and and there is and there's definitely a need for multifamily in in New York. Obviously, we know about the affordable housing shortage or just the, the lack of of uh, apartments in general. There's there is a lot of demand to live in in New York despite some of its, you know, recent struggles. Yes. And um and this is one way to solve that, but it's not it's not so simple though because a lot of these office properties are not uh, conducive to being converted to multifamily, depending on the floor plates. And ironically, some of the older properties that were built in like the 60s and 70s are are more conducive to this. And there's actually a couple, uh, actually very close to where I work, that are kind of underway right now. One of them is uh, 25 Water Street and the other 55 Broad Street, uh, both in the financial district. So it'll be interesting to see how those projects pan out. And perhaps if they're successful, they could be kind of a... Uh, you know, a good template for, for more uh, conversion projects. Um, 
you know, I think there also might be some, you know, some efforts to maybe convert some buildings to life sciences, perhaps. But again, that's, you, you know, it really depends on the, the width of the building in a lot of cases, you know, they, you know mm-hmm. in terms of the floor plates that it will not always be, be a possibility. But I think you know, you're going to have to see you're going to see a lot of creativity, I think, uh, in the coming years to, to try to find ways to, to make use of, of some of these spaces. Andrew Cohen, reporter for Commercial Observer. One thing we can count on: New York City never stays the same. It's all she's always evolving, and we're and, and, and we're not as bad as San Francisco. <laughs> and true. resilient. That's right. Thank you so much. Talk Absolutely. to you soon. All right. Thank you. You got it. All right. After the break, I want to talk to you. I want to make this a really short break, if we can, uh, so we can get as many calls as possible. Hang on, I'm coming for you. <laughs> Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Thank you so much for listening to WABC this afternoon. All right, let's go to let's go to Nassau County first. We've got Anthony in Elmont. What's on your mind? Okay, Laura, um, and I voted for you and I'm a Republican. The best thing the city of New York or the country can do is to end the 65 Immigration Act and illegal immigration, including visa violations. Mm-hmm. This all is turning our country upside down. People coming in our country now, it's like they're rearranging the furniture. And it's about time people who are Americans who really want something done. Go, be can go. 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 I don't know who that is, but okay. He had a good point, <laughs> which I, people are very funny. Um, I want to talk now to George in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. George, what's going on? Wow, Laura, I don't know what the heck that right? was. Right? Like that, I, like I thought it was like a Baba Booey, but it was something completely different. <laughs> yeah, I think you know what it was. It was it had to be that Steve from Manhattan. Go, be can go. 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 Oh, you're great. Okay. Uh, do you think Jerry from Edison wants to say the same thing? Jerry, what do you got? Just get right. Just, you know what? Cut to the chase if that's what you want to do. Uh, no. Uh, so did you just have on Leslie Caldwell? Is that Caldwell? Caldwell. Caldwell. Yes. Yeah. Was she the assistant attorney Barack Obama of the criminal division? Uh, she was. She was. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, a couple things about her. One is, yeah, she was there from listed. fourteen to two thousand fourteen to two thousand seventeen. Yeah, she left as soon as Trump came. She was knocked out of there. Number one, right? Uh, so she doesn't like that. But she's much. worked under you know Bush administrations, et cetera, as a U.S. attorney. Also, and all them right. She's part of the swamp. So what I look at her as is a swamp creature, and mm. she's also a Democrat. She's registered where she was, or she's listed in Wikipedia as a Democrat. She's part of the swamp. She's in the Mueller team. She worked for Mueller, according to Wikipedia. So going through Wikipedia. Yes, you're not wrong. You're not wrong, Jerry. And see, this is this is the problem is that nobody is going to trust someone who's been in the government for a long time. And I think you're going to find the same thing on the other side and see, how do we get beyond that? That's my concern. You know, that's how to- not re- my issue with her is really not that it's that she's trying to throw this like uh blanket on everything like this is the way it's always been and anybody with eyes ears and a brain and wants to be honest too can see that this is not the way it's always been now even though she has like 40 years of experience she'd have to be on mars the last seven years of what we've seen with under since trump the way the justice department and people are acting and the way they handled clinton and hunter and 
the way they handle Joe Biden even in, in, in general. Yeah. So when you look at the difference, there's no comparison. This has never happened before. I don't know what she's talking about. I'm sure she's a nice woman and she's a fantastic lawyer, but she's just not being honest about what we're looking at now. That's all I'm saying. I don't think she is anyway. My- Jerry, I very much appreciate your opinion, and I'm really glad you called. Please call back. Do we have time to get in uh, Norman? Norman, can you make Hello? it 15 seconds? Uh, I think that that lady, he was right. That lady was a a, a, a example of a person who's been in the defense, yeah. in the uh, Justice Department for a long time. And she's, of course, going to defend him just like Ray defends him. She was full of... Norman, I appreciate your call. And I'm sorry we couldn't get to Mario, Chris, or Tony. Uh, call back next time and I will prioritize you. Mario, I think I've spoken to you a million times. Anyway... Please listen. Stay tuned. It's Positively Ernie live to finish off your weekend. Thanks so much for listening to WABC Radio Live.